Hello and welcome back to the Stadio podcast. I'm Musa Kwonga. I'm Ryan Hun. And this week we are doing a very special thing. It's the first of a two part The Wire Extra celebrating one of the greatest television series in history, one of the greatest pieces of art in modern history, I would say. A show beloved to us both. And you've come dressed as Bunk. I've come dressed as Detective Bunk Moreland, Suthin Abuta, Baltimore's finest. Even got a taste. All Metro lacrosse legend, <laughs> crab cake consumer. <laughs> Actually, before we even start, we got a reply. So we posted a screenshot of this, our Google Hangout, and we got a tweet from Manu Ekanayaki saying, are you going to eat that crab gut? Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So much crab. I've got to say, the thing about The Wire, for those who haven't watched this incredible series, HBO series, shout out to the incredible HBO. There is so much great food in The Wire. Hmm. Yeah. Before we get onto it. <laughs> getting carried away. Just a little quick bit of admin. So we did another Stadio Sessions on Friday, number four. Two hours of Brazilian music, two hours of commentary of Brazilian footballers. You can go and listen to that again. It's got the track list up on the mixlr.com forward slash stadio. You go to the show reel. It's got all the past sessions in there. And yeah, next week we might be launching something maybe we need your help with. Yeah. So keep an eye out for that. And also, yeah, just a quick reminder, if you do listen to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, please give us a rating and a review. It helps us grow the podcast. It does indeed. I think that's everything. So yeah, two-parter of The Wire we're doing this week. The way that we're going to structure it is that the first half of this episode, you and I are just going to kind of talk about our love for The Wire. And then after the break, we'll start going into which kind of footballers are Wire characters or which characters, like match them up basically. So match a character with a footballer and why. And we'll read out some suggestions. And then on Thursday's episode, we will do a whole show of the rest of the characters because we're going to save some big ones, I think, for, for the next episode, right? Can't go too hard too soon. You say that, but we'll see. We'll see. We're still going to go in. As Lester says, Musa, the details matter. The details matter. Absolutely. Should we go into why we decided to do this? Because it's been quite long in the making. Yeah, sure, sure. You kick it off. You kick it off. It was maybe like 18 months ago. Yeah, about, my a, year, old about place. a year and a half. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you and I were just sat around and we were talking about The Wire and then we started talking about potentially writing something or co-writing something, weren't we, about, I think it was Manchester United, like deconstructing the hierarchy and the squad of Manchester United within the the framework of The Wire. And I always felt that was too small because I felt like, at first we talked about it, but then I thought, I mean, because The Wire, it goes across five seasons and it goes across the whole cross-section of Baltimore society, civilians, politicians criminals in quotes victims Um, and even the word criminals feels weird in this context because they're so nuanced they're not they're just people who happen to be doing acts that are criminal um it felt actually after the initial discussion that we had that it had to be wider than that that we could actually map the wire and all its intricacies onto the world of football which is why we are here now um and in between that actually so along that journey so within the the 18 months this conversation starting and us talking right now a few other things happen. So we were talking about footballers being like wire characters in the context of Man United, then Real Madrid at one point because Madrid is such a dramatic club. Oh yeah, that was when we had uh, we were having lunch at this pizza place in Oskreutz. Yeah, exactly. exactly. And we were tweeting about it, right? And we had a load of people replying. Yeah, exactly. But then we started drilling into like, let's go a bit deeper than that. And then in the interim period, and shout out to The Ringer, because The Ringer have now launched a podcast, I think, about, well, they've launched a podcast about The Wire. Yeah, it's called Way Down in the Hole. It's really good. It's a really, really good listen. I'd recommend it. The thing that made us do this this time was I think The Ringer did a 
short Twitter thread of NBA players as wire characters. And this was before they launched this podcast. And we were just like, oh man, we should just do this because there's no football on and we've been talking about it for so long. And I think it's it's better suited to a podcast than a, than a written piece. So here we are. Indeed, here we are. Um, and we've been doing a rewatch. We have. Uh, this is my third viewing. How many of you watched of this? Was I can't remember if it's three or four. I think it's. Th- I think this is number. It's four for you. Three. It's you said it's, it's either three or four. You said it was your third rewatch the other day. Yeah, so it must be number four then. For me, it's number three. And the first time I watched it was funny because I, I was just starting to see someone. The funny thing was that I actually said to, I was about ninety percent of the way through, and I said, um just got to finish this show off. It's really, really good. <laughs> it's the benefit of us both that I get it all done. And I promise we'll watch it together when I finished watching it. So we ended up watching wow. it together again. Yeah. Because I was like deep into it. Like, you know, you'd come, I come back from, I had the DVDs. I borrowed them from a friend. Shout out to Nick and Camilla. I borrowed it from them. I had the five box set and um, I borrowed it from Nick and Camilla. And um, the funny thing was that I was coming home at like three o'clock from like nights out and watching two or three episodes. Like it was that good. Yeah. Like it, it demanded attention through all five series. And I think in a way it kind of, um, The Wire is unlucky because it predated the, the Netflix generation mm. for which it would have been absolutely astonishing. I believe, I firmly believe if The Wire came out right now at this time, and there's another reason why it's fascinating in this context, The Wire had come out right now with everyone at home, would have been watched in record time. And the reason why it's interesting, actually, because, you know, in The Wire, there's a moment where the drug dealers always shout out the name of like a famous, uh, a cultural phenomenon that's occurring. So it's like WMD because weapons of mass destruction. But one of the big shouts, as you know, is pandemic, pandemic. And the the Wire came out around the time of SARS, 2003. Like it's that long ago. The last time the world was struck by a pandemic the wire was out. Wow. And it's funny how that's come full circle. Yeah, it's come full circle. It was really funny how going back and rewatching it the second time, realizing how much I'd missed just because I'd watched it so quickly. And the thing about the wire is that because of the pacing of it, it's really easy to miss subtle details. Right. When you watch it for the first time. There's so much stuff that you notice like second and third rewatch or whatever, second and third time you watch it that happens off screen that you pick up a little bit of, but there's so much of it that you pick up more and more each time you watch. So it's like kind of like looking at a painting, like you go and what you go and view a painting in a gallery or something like that and you see it and you look at it. If you see it a second or third time, you start seeing it in a different way and noticing different things and stuff like that. Do you know what I've, you've made, you've, when you talk of paintings, there's a specific painting you've reminded me of. There's a John Martin painting of the apocalypse in three parts. And yeah, John Martin's apocalypse. There's a particular point where there's so much going on in this particular painting by John Martin, I think 18th century painter. And there's a moment where the world is folding in on itself. So you've got this wild sort of scene where there's a volcano and a void right next to each other. And there are people clambering up the side of the hill to try and to avoid the void, but they're running towards the volcano. And if you look at that picture, like every time I go there, I saw it at the Tate Britain, I saw it. Every time I go there and see that painting, I see a different detail. I see a different form of desperation or entropy or collapse or decline. And the wire is the same. You watch it again and the facial expressions on the children as they're disappointed. And you watch it again and there's so much heartbreak. There's a moment when the, in the schools... One of the great scenes, I think, in any TV show where 
there's a young black girl whose backstory is never fully drawn out, which is a shame because she's an astonishing character. And she slashes another girl in the face with a razor. Yeah. And everyone's going like wild over it and angry. And one guy sits next to her, a school kid, and he gives her a fan and starts like blowing her face to like cool her down and calm her down. He gives her the fan because he's got the most horrific background that you know about in that show. Mm. And he understands her. When everyone's looking at the angry black girl, she's sitting there and he's so tender with her and no one else in the entire show is tender. And all these nuances that you don't fully get the first time. There's not a wasted moment. Never. No, 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 nothing at all. Everything's exquisite. Everything's exquisite. I think it's down to just the casting being incredible. So I've watched a number of these kind of programs or you can get them all on YouTube where it'll be the cast of The Wire talking about how they auditioned and how they got the roles and stuff. Mm. And the thing that's really surprising to me is how many people originally auditioned for different roles. Right. So for example, like Isaiah Whitlock, who plays Clay Davis, he originally auditioned for the role of Lester Freeman. That's wild. Yeah. And Seth Gilliam, who plays Sergeant Carver, he originally auditioned for the role of Stringer Bell before getting the Carver role. Would never have worked. Stringer Bell is basically kind of black Lex Luthor. You know, in terms of a kind of um, a supervillain who is physically imposing, who could rock with you physically, but also outthink you in any corner, like Stringer Bell's a kind of like, you know, obviously the, the drug kingpin mastermind. It's almost like left brain and right brain. He's the left brain to Avon Barksdale's right brain as mm. a sort of drug dealing duo. Um, but what The Wire says to me, actually, it highlights something about the state of maybe American drama. The, a lot of the actors who are astonishing in this really didn't go on to do much else. Not really, like not really in, of a scale that was significant considering their talent. Now there's two things there. Could I argue that those roles fitted them so perfectly that they were born to play them and those roles alone? Or maybe it says more troubling things about the amount of roles available to black actors elsewhere in Hollywood because I, I saw a great interview with her, Wood Harris, who plays Avon Barksdale. Oh, I was about to mention him, yeah. And he says that, um, he said, look, The Wire didn't win a single Emmy, even though it's got all these incredible accolades. It never won a single Emmy. The ratings weren't great. And he said, he said, look, he said, it's a black show, he said. Yeah, and they nearly cancelled it after season three. Right. Can you imagine if they'd done that? I know. They would miss that one of the greatest seasons of, I mean, season four, many people regard that as one of the greatest seasons of television in American history. The character that he played in it, Avon Barksdale, was actually based on a real-life drug dealer called uh, Nathan Bodie Barksdale. Whoa. Which is interesting because Bodie is the name of another character in, in The Wire. And the other wild thing is one of the most famous drug dealers of all time, or notorious ones, Melvin Williams, plays the deacon. Yeah. And that was very controversial because Melvin Williams estimated he'd made up to $200 million trafficking heroin. And so his appearance in the show was very controversial because a lot of people, a lot of uh, natives natives of Baltimore, residents of Baltimore felt that this show was glorifying the past that he had had. So th- there are so many nuances about the creation of the show. I would say if you could draw a, comp- if I could draw a parallel between this and a movie that you saw in the cinema, I would say it was almost like Apocalypse Now. Imagine Apocalypse Now over the course of five seasons. It's that rich. Yeah. I mean, it's just, I mean, kind of going back to what I was saying before, I think that one of the reasons that makes that element of never having a wasted moment is that it's cast so brilliantly, but also the writing is some of the best writing ever. Like we've spoke about it being like basically modern day Shakespeare. Right. Yeah, absolutely. But that was the recommendation that I got. My friend Fenella I used to work with, she was like, Musa, you have to watch The Wire. And I was like, okay. Everyone was talking about it. I was like, what is it about this show? And she said, it, it's Shakespeare. And it's a big shout calling it Shakespeare. And you watch it and you're like, oh, it's 
not better because Shakespeare, Shakespeare, but it's almost like Balzac when Balzac had the human comedy and you had all these separate novels where characters would come and weave between different books and come in and out and just be in a corner of one scene. It's like a French epic, like a Victor Hugo, like Les Miserables or something, mm. or like Tolstoy. It's that scale of literature. It's literature, basically. There's a common thing with The Wire that people maybe abandon it halfway through season one because of the pace of it. They find the pace too slow. That's a common thing that a lot of people I know who have who kind of tried it and didn't end up finishing it have said. And also, a lot of people tend to hate on season two because obviously it pivots from being predominantly in the city focusing on the terraces and it moves to the port and a lot of the primary characters in season two are white whereas in the in season one they're not and i was actually watching a thing that michael k williams who plays omar he was saying that a lot of the cast were really unhappy with the way that it pivoted in season two and actually not fell out but had words with david simon like one of the show's creators and then michael k williams said that when season three began and he got the scripts and everything he was just completely blown away by how he'd like underestimated how important season two was in the context of the whole thing. Right. Um, David Simons, I, I watched a really, really good, almost like mini lecture that he gave, uh, I think it was like 2014 at the Barbican in London. And this is a guy who worked at the Baltimore Sun for years. He was a reporter by trade and he was saying that the focus was on the city. So everything was as it was, basically. It's almost like an, an intangible thing with The Wire that its authenticity, I think, is is in the detail and the care that it lays out the city and the geography and the geography in terms of like physical geography, but also the kind of interspersing relationships. The social and emotional, the emotional geography, the social geography. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. That's why I think that it's just different to other dramas of that period. Like it's even different to, to The Sopranos. Like I love The Sopranos, but The Wire pips it for me because there's something about it that you hadn't really seen before in that way whereas as much as i love the sopranos there were elements of it that you'd seen quite a lot yeah the sopranos doesn't teach me anything about society and i think what elevates it's like what elevates a great player a great footballer into the top of all time it's what Mm -hmm. elevates you from a top 20 footballer who basically has incredible stats and does everything to a top three where you're someone that not only is incredible it by yourself, but incredible like to those around you and then influencing the society. So The Sopranos, I think, is a top three all-time show because not only was it incredible individually, but it inspired so much great television. Cultural impact was big, but the final rung that it doesn't elevate above the why, even though the why I think has greater dips than The Sopranos. And the Sopranos actually, as a uniform piece of writing, is actually uniformly higher in terms of the quality of writing. But The Wire, individually an astonishing show, influenced TV without question, but also influenced the conversation about society and where society should go. Legalization of drugs, um, you know, black on black crime, the, the deconstructing what black on black crime is and the fact that that's actually a racist concept in itself, uh, but not doing it in a didactic way, just showing you that people who are desperate will end up killing each other, which is why season two is such genius because season two shows you a depiction something you don't see too often in American TV or hadn't seen to that point, a depiction of harrowing white urban poverty, not trailer Mm. park, urban poverty, and white people being forced to desperation. But still within the poverty, you see the racism so casual. You see white people who have black work colleagues who they love and trust and look up to, but still being casually racist at home. You see all of that nuance, that detail. That is why, and it's funny because... 
I love The Sopranos. I adore James Gandolfini, probably still the greatest television actor in terms of a series I've seen, in terms of sustained performances. But The Wire, the fact that we are here now discussing the implications of it, the fact that we've grown up with it, the fact that I first watched it age 25 and 15 years later, I'm re-watching it and seeing so much more within it. Now that I'm the age of a lot of the detectives who take place in that, who are the protagonists. And dressed like one as well. Yeah, exactly. Dressed like, oh my goodness, I busted out. This is my young wedding. Young Bunk. T- Listen, shout out, Young Bunk, shout out. Um, the yeah, amount so- of times I've had to pick Musa up with someone's bathroom wearing a pink dressing gown. <laughs> Ryan! <laughs> Ryan! <laughs> Cigar in his mouth. It's like, Musa, why are you trying to set fire to your clothes? Just because... <laughs> No, so, I mean, yeah, just a sort of end my little uh, soliloquy. Um, That's a good word. Yeah, I know. It's, it's very Shakespearean, isn't it? Yeah, just the cultural impact of The Wire is just, um, it blows me away, right? Like, how can you enjoy something that much on a, an artistic level, but also be so enriched by it? That's the kind of holy grail of art. All right, I reckon we take a break, and then we're going to come back and start on our footballers as Wire characters. Absolutely. Let's do it. Let's do it. back from the break and we're going to start on a couple of characters there's actually an amazing one here from rich homie kwanzaa it says thomas Partey as slim charles oh that is amazing he stands tall seemingly simple on their face but their simplicity is genius and allows so many around them to flourish that's an incredible shout i really like that that's amazing because you know slim charles has got the most i've not heard thomas Partey speak but slim charles has got the best voice Oh, yeah, in the whole show, yeah. Oh, my goodness. I, Him and Lester. Yeah. If you want to know what Slim Charles' character is like, just watch Thomas Partey in the second leg against Liverpool at Anfield when he doesn't play a forward pass the first half hour, but everything he does is perfect. I can imagine Thomas Partey at 35 talking to some young midfielder and just being like, the thing about the old days is they're the old days. <laughs> some young yeah. buck coming up through the system. Young buck, exactly. <laughs> there's one that we always used to talk about and this was when we when we started the the man united wire thing and was brother muzone yeah who was our pick that we always used to say for brother muzone <laughs> well considering we're thinking of like a cold-blooded killer who doesn't hesitate who is devastating when it matters most it's anthony martial and he doesn't feature a huge amount no right exactly someone martial basically comes in at peak moments as his brother muzone in the wire and has these kind of cameos where he dominates proceedings. Like when, when Martial's on his game, you can't take your eyes off him. And he's uniquely decisive, even though he's been badly coached for the last couple of seasons. Yeah, Martial and Muzone, I think that's the one. That's where it kind of kicked off the conversation. And also, funnily enough, there's a, there's a coldness in Martial's eyes. I think there's a couple of things when we're matching these up. I think there's like, just their kind of energy is what. Yeah, yeah maybe they'd actually play them and be really good at it, which I think you said about Martial. Like Martial would play Brother Muzone. If he was auditioning for Brother Muzone, he'd be incredible. Like to the point yeah. where if anyone feels they want to Photoshop any of these characters... Oh my God, uh, yeah, that'd be amazing. If, if, if anyone feels inclined to do any, if you've got a couple of spare minutes and want to Photoshop any of these like footballers' heads onto the bodies of like wire characters. <laughs> so I, I, I genuinely believe if, if Antia Martial went in and did a reading to audition for Brother Muzone, he'd get the role. I agree. 
we had an amazing one from Raha MX on Twitter saying Mino Raiola as prop Joe. <laughs> so good. So good. Always gets paid. From both sides. Represents everyone. Never turns up in a suit. Like everyone else is wearing like dress the nines, but he's just there rocking up in whatever, like he's on a beach, like he's in Malibu. Yeah, prop Joe's that guy. I reckon Mino Raiola is probably the guy that would have all that money and still run like a repair shop. For sure. Yeah, absolutely. But then I would say on the flip side of that, so prop Joe's like a street politician, but I feel like an official politician in relation to football, Clay Davis's character, Clay Davis is kind of like, you know, fast talking senator. He's always got his hand in in someone's pocket. George Mendes. George Mendes. <laughs> he's there forever. So many new kids in the block, but you can't dislodge him. No one necessarily will say it to his face. He's not necessarily the one that's widely liked, but you cannot ignore him. That's such a huge shout, man. Honestly, just taking the agent fee from one club, going straight over to the other club, taking the agent fee from them. Yeah. And then selling it back to the first club and then just being like, well, you know. There's an amazing wrestling gif of a ringmaster. And I can't, I don't know where the quote is from, but it's a gif I often use on Twitter. And it's this, this guy going, he goes, you may not like it, but respect it. And I was like, I was like, that is George Mendes' entire career. That's Clay Davis' entire career. You may not like it, but respect it. You have to respect it. Oh, man. That is, that's such a huge shout. George Mendes is... Clay Davis. Oh, God. Shit. Shit. Okay, so I want to go for a big call here. What character? McNulty. Oh, Yeah, the anti-hero cop. Smart and everyone else in the room, so he thinks, but actually not. Someone who is absolutely brilliant, technically brilliant individually, but brilliant also as part of the team. Does hand out good assists, don't get me wrong. Loves his teammates, absolutely. His intellectual trophy cabinet is not as bulging as he thinks it is, and eventually falls victim to his own myth-making. It's Latin. Oh my God. Yeah. Zlatan's, <laughs> Zlatan is McNulty. That is going to send people raging. You do know that. Do you know why I say this? Because look at Baltimore. Baltimore is a fabulous self-contained ecosystem, as is Sweden. It is a small pond, and McNulty is an absolutely enormous fish. If McNulty was in New York, would he be the guy? Not sure. Baltimore, he's definitely the guy. And a part of him likes being the guy. That's why he's there for five seasons. And... You know, Zlatan never quite, I think, escaped that as brilliant as he was, as brilliant as he is, as a legend as he is, as legends McDulty is in The Wire, there was a sense in which McNulty never quite embraced what his limitations were. And you see that throughout the five seasons where he's talking and he comes up with some brilliant solution, right? Some brilliant detective solution, which no one else could have come up with. Only the members of his team have come up with even better and deeper solutions. And you see the shock on his face as he's been surpassed. And there's a part of me that's always felt a little bit like, with a bit more humility, both Zlatan and McNulty could have gone even further into legend. So yeah, he's my shout. They're going to come for me after that. That is amazing. You can't can't imagine Zlatan just kind of saying stuff like, I'm the smartest guy in five districts. Exactly. Of course. In fact, I'd love to see Zlatan a Swedish version of The Wire, Zlatan playing McNulty, would be incredible. Oh my God, that would be amazing. We had a few suggestions for Lester Freeman. So one from Kevin Leahy said Iniesta is Lester Freeman. One from Jack Simpson said Lester Freeman has to be Jabby Alonso and Stringer as Javi. Rawls would be Daesh if this was Atletico Mints. We had another one for Rawls. The two unfortunates said 
Mourinho as rules. See, no, uh, see, no, because rules is you got to be physically imposing. Mourinho's got the smarts of rules, but rules is also like a kind of buffalo. He could handle you. Let's do Freeman first, and then we'll move on to rules. Okay, okay, we're going to that. But let, let's park that thought with rules for a second. On Freeman, my shout for Freeman is actually if we think about what Freeman's character is, trace it logically, someone who did astonishing work for large stretches of his career, but languished in relative obscurity on the grand scheme. In the grand scheme, thirteen years and four months. And four months. Everyone reps him, but everyone knows deep down that he's pretty much the best, with maybe one or two exceptions. So for me, my my footballer who would play Lester Freeman is actually Henrik Larsson. Wow. Yeah, because I think for a period in the late 90s to early 2000s, Henrik Larsson, with the exception of perhaps Thierry Henry, was the best striker in Britain, arguably the best striker in Europe, like top five in the whole of Europe. That's a really big shout, man. Larsson was that good. He was that guy. Larsson against anyone from 97 to 04, I reckon he's top five anywhere as a striker anywhere in Europe. So the Celtic years, basically. Yeah. Celtic years. Oh, there were a lot of good strikers around then, though. There were, but if we look at them, what we've got York and Cole, we've got Shearer, we've got Henri, obviously, Van Nistelrooy. See, I think Larson is superior to all of those, with the exception of Thierry Henry. Technically, in terms of a decisiveness in big games, scores the UEFA Cup final like it's nothing. I mean, you got, remember, you've got Ronaldo around then as well. Yeah, so top five. He's top five then. Yeah, I think he's top five. Who are the top five back then then? So say what, like two, peaking around the 2000s. Okay. You've got to put Raul in there, to be honest. Raul, we have to, because they've got those three Champions Leagues from 98 to 2002. Raul's got to be in the conversation. Ronaldo, Thierry Henry, Henrik Larsson, and I would say Van Nistelrooy. If you had to have five, like a clutch of five. I know you've got Elbert as well. You've got other brilliant players. You've got Claudio Lopez. They, to me, are kind of like, they're in the five to 20 range. And yeah, Shearer's in the 5 to 20 range, I think, as well. Shearer's brilliant. But yeah, those guys, they stand out to me. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Ronaldo, Raul, Van Nistelrooy, Larson, Henri. That's strong. All right. That's strong. Yeah. I mean, I've got a different shout for Lester Freeman. So my shout for Lester Freeman is Rinos Mikels. Okay, yeah, okay. I like it. I like it. Explain. His first stint at Ajax, he had four Eredivisies, three Dutch Cups, a European Cup, and a runner-up in a final. And then he goes to Barcelona. He only wins three trophies in two stints. And his only other trophy after that is the German Cup with Cologne in 83. So it's really weird. It's that front end of his career is really loaded. So that's like Lester Freeman's homicide career. Yeah, yeah. And then it really dips. And then he comes back and wins the Euros with with the Netherlands in 88. That's like Leicester getting back into major crimes. Yeah, exactly. Was was that moment they say, you know, you rolled away the stone, Lester, you rolled away the stone of the cave. We thought you came back from the dead. And I think there's, you know, actually Ranieri has a similar trajectory where Ranieri for a long time was not quite Freeman because he didn't have the early success, but Ranieri for a long time was maligned as a guy that couldn't get it done. You know, he was your second place guy. He was never your, the guy that was finished. I think that Mikel's had a, a moment like that where people thought, can he still do it? Can he still win big? Yeah. And also it's like, you know how like Lester's still a detective, right? Yeah. But there's a thing in, is it season four where he gives out a load of orders and Herc says, you know, can this come from me? Cause I'm the sergeant. Yeah. So if you think about the time of like the early eighties or whatever, Mikel's would probably be in a room with someone like say, you know, say someone like Alex Ferguson. Yeah. Who's doing really well at Aberdeen, but would probably 
still give the order. Yeah, he's one of those people that people would respect, even though he doesn't outrank them. Exactly, exactly. Do you know that's the only other? You know, it's funny now you mention this. The only other person I'd mention, I think that Mikael's is the outstanding shout. The only other person I'd mention in relation to Lester Freeman on your analysis is Jupp Heynckes. Oh, that's a really good shout, actually. I tell you why. Champions League in 1998 with Real Madrid gets yeah. sacked basically after just after winning 22 days after winning the Champions League he's sacked and then kind of goes into a relative wilderness so in, in relation to the scale of his talent slightly goes off the radar a bit and then when no one thinks he's got it left in him pops up with a treble and just bounces and like ends up happy in obscurity with his partner as obviously Lester Freeman does so it's a funny kind of he's the only other person I still think that Mikos is the guy but I'm now thinking honourable honourable mention for Jupankus. Yeah, I think that's a shout. I mean, from between 98 and 2012-13, all he had was two Intertoto Cups with Schalke. It just goes quiet, doesn't it? It's a funny one. Mm-hmm. But I still think Renus is the guy. I like that shout. But yeah, Renus is, Renus is the guy. Nice. Yeah, this is great. Oh, let's, oh we're going to do rules. Oh, okay. Go on. My shout for rules. And it has to be because actually I think there's something quite... So your face so, is... What, what is this? What is, who's this going to be? Louis van Gaal. <laughs> Louis van Gaal for rules. <laughs> Louis van Gaal for rules. Without question. You can see it. You can see him absolutely hammering. You can see... You can imagine him walking into a room on a Monday morning, furious at police statistics, and absolutely hammering the officers about their lack of tactics. There's an incredible scene where he cross-examines someone on their failure to solve murders and their failure to see the big picture. And I was like, this is like Louis van Gaal screaming tactics at idiotic journalists. Oh my you can, you God. You can see man. it, can't you? You can actually imagine him being that guy. You could just like, you know, Rawls' first scene ever in The Wire is when McNulty comes in. <laughs> Push you top. His very, very first line in the entire programme is sit the fuck down, detective. So good. And you could totally imagine Louis van Gaal doing that to Zlatan. Zlatan walks in and he's like, you wanted to see me, Major? Sit the fuck down, detective. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> he's one of the only people who would talk to Zlatan that way. And if you think about it as well, he made his move too early. Like he literally rocked up at Barcelona. But Bobby Robson was still on the bench. <laughs> made his move too early. Overconfidence won him as many enemies as friends. Evan still regards him, even those who despise him as a strategic genius. Do you know what? This is actually, I wasn't going to mention this until the second part of this. I'm now thinking that Daniel Venderdonk would definitely audition for this department. I'm definitely seeing her in this. <laughs> this, this detective, it has such an energy. We'll say this in the second part, maybe in further analysis, but Vanderdonk has to feature in, in this. She was on my list for someone. She's but, on my uh, list. I'm not sure about it yet. But she has the characteristics of this person, for sure. Anyway, carry on. I wish that Bobby Robson was more of a dickhead, because then he could have been Burrell, and then that whole thing would have fit together so well. But he is he is in The Wire, though, Bobby Robson. Raymond Forster. Ooh. Yeah, he goes to the department, and everyone, no one's got a bad word to say about him. That's Bobby Robson, the saint-like figure. That's him. He doesn't beef with people. He's kind of above the fray. It's a funny one, because Sir Bobby Robson was someone who despite all he achieved in football, didn't have really any enemies. And even like, even more saintly than a kind of Wenger type figure, when Forster dies and he has a wake, there's this incredible tribute they give where they say, this person like worked in a really hard department, 
and had no enemies, mm. which is something remarkable. And I think Bobby Robson was the same. Yeah, that's really, that's no a good enemies. shout. Raymond Forster, Bobby Robson. Let's do another tweet. Yep, yep. This one from Sean is absolutely amazing. It says, Chris, Jose era, Drogba. Getting the job done no matter what, always doing what the manager needs, could even link their end goals to make sure their families are taken care of or even the whole country. That's incredible. Wow. Okay, wow, let's unpack that. So first of all, Didier Drogba playing Chris is incredible, which means that Jose Mourinho is Marlowe, which also works perfectly because... Oh my God. Well, Marlowe Stanfield, basically, who is he? He's slick. He's photogenic. There's a ruthlessness. He's supremely tactical. Everything is about the details and about discipline. He's almost a mirror image of a Lester Freeman, in a sense, a young Lester Freeman. And Mourinho has a legacy of being uniquely ruthless. Not defeated at home for several years. And who defeats the Marlowe in his corners? No one for several years. So, no bodies. Yeah, no bodies. Huge unbeaten streak at home. Demands unquestioning loyalty from his lieutenants. And Drogba's certainly that. And I can even imagine Drogba turning up to an audition for this role of Chris Partlow with his hair all out in a kind of jerry curl. I can imagine relaxing his hair and like just going full. I think, I think Drogba would do an astonishing audition for this role of Chris Partlow. Marlowe would definitely gouge the eye of an opposition assistant manager. Standard, he would actually. He'd do it on site, he'd do it on site. It's like when Weebay says in the thing where, you know, things are different now, like to when we came up, when he's talking about Marlowe and the way that they're doing stuff. Do you know why Marlowe is Mourinho as well? Because even after making all those millions, Marlowe still picks fight with people on the corner. And Mourinho, after yeah. winning, this man's won two Champions Leagues and he's getting into fights with Tito Villanova. Like, he's still taking the guy who runs the corner shop's ring off him for no reason. Exactly. Marlowe basically says he'll leave the drug game. And what does he do? As soon as he, mel- he, sells like, he sells out for like $10 million, as soon as he does that, he's on the corner again looking for trouble. That's Mourinho. What's that Jay-Z, the Jay-Z thing, the Jay-Z line? Can't leave rap alone. The game needs me. It's like, it's different with Mourinho. Can't leave the game alone. I need the game. You know what I mean? Like he needs the game, Mourinho. And so does Marlo. Uh, actually on the WeeBay tip, I've got one for WeeBay. Oh, go on. Let's hear, let's hear it. Diego Costa. <laughs> Whenever I hear that name, I laugh. <laughs> we've, summ- we've summoned him again. <laughs> well, if you think about it, right? So WeeBay, massively entertaining all the way yeah. throughout his career. But did some pretty off-key shit. That's right. Confessed to all of those murders that weren't on him because he knew he was getting locked up as well, which is big Diego Costa energy. Like, Diego Costa would totally cop to a load of murders that weren't his because he knew he was going down anyway, and he'd just be, like, laughing whilst doing it. But then there's that bit in season four where he's talking to Colvin about his son, Naaman, and how Naaman could be something, and he's not a corner boy, and the Weebay of old wouldn't have handled it the way that that Weebay did. He's basically like, yeah, I don't want this kid to go my way. Yeah. Wait a minute. My mind is being blown all of a sudden. So you're telling me Avon Barksdale's Diego Simeone. Is Diego Simeone? <laughs> that Letty, is that what you're telling me? He might not be, but what I'm saying is, from what I'm getting, the Barksdale clan has some kind of Atleti energy. <laughs> it does have Atleti energy because they're ruthless, but they have a code. They have a code of conduct. I'm interested about this. So does that mean that Andrea Berta is. Stringer Bell, just because Diego Simeone is just like, I bleed red, you bleed green. Do you know that's actually, do you, do you know that's amazing? Because Andrea Berta has been linked with other clubs far more than Simeone has been linked with other clubs, mm-hmm. which suggests that the loyalties are slightly different. So like Berta's downtown, like downtown doing all the real estate stuff. 
Yeah. Simeone's just a gangster. He's just, I'm just like, a gangster. I'm it? just a gangster. You know, I think this is actually... <laughs> oh, my God. Diego Barksdale. So you got, like, Diego as Avon, Berta as String. I mean, we're going to have to do another Stringer one anyway, separate to Atletico, uh, Atleti, but I like this. The energy is there, though. The energy is there. Weebay as Diego Costa. Can we squeeze any more in? <laughs> Name on Shroud Felix. <laughs> the... <laughs> The brilliant young pretty boy who's got all the skill but just doesn't have the kind of the ruthlessness. You look at that clan and you're like The game's not in him. Yeah, you you look at Joao Felix, you're like, what's a nice boy like that doing at Atleti? You know, he's a nice boy with a bit of nasty, but a nice boy. Do you reckon Diego Costa talks to people and he's just like, he's got a chance to be something better than I was? Yeah, exactly. This street life ain't for him. It's not the, in, game, the, the game's not in him like it was in me. The dark exactly. hearts weren't in him. You never see Jao Felix on those Super Villain 11. Never, never. Never. But he'll be liking their tweets and he'll be liking them on Instagram. He'll, his hand will never be in it. You'll see a Super Villain like post on the Instagram and you'll see Jao Felix go, yeah, I like that. That's great. That's, I love this. I love this. Do you know what? Any more? Any more? I think that is such a peak ending. We have to end there. Yeah, I don't think we could better that for this episode. We can't. The Barksdale clan has big Atleti energy. (laughs) Oh man, what a reveal. So we're going to do episode two later in the week. If you want to tweet us ideas and stuff, feel free. At Stadio on Twitter. Photoshops. Yeah, photoshops. (laughs) Who your characters are. Um, Oh God, that's kind of, that's killed me that last bit. (laughs) <laughs> oh, we're playing out on well you can hear what we're playing out on because why not at Stadio on Twitter Stadio Football on Instagram the website is Stadio.Football we'll be back on Thursday with part two of this silly silly show yeah absolutely <laughs> traditional wire farewell we were called we served we accounted <laughs> the and the Yanks, they were within Natural police And the tinker boys, they hissed advice But were with a pen When we turned and shook As we had a look In a room where the dead man lay So big Jim Dwyer made his last trip To the shores where his father's laid Later we had our first taste of whiskey There was uncles giving lectures on ancient Irish history The men all started telling jokes and the women they got frisky With five o'clock in the evening every bastard there was pesky Very well gone away, there's nothing left to say Farewell to New York City boys, the Boston NPA He took them out with a well on cloud and I often heard him say I'm a freeborn man of the USA I remembered how I swore that I'd come back to you one day And as the sunset came to me, the evening on a hill I told you I'd always love you, I always did, I always will Fairly well gone away, there's nothing left to say But say adieu to your eyes as blue as the words are in the bay To big Jim Dwight, a man of war who was often heard to say I'm a freeborn man of the USA I'm a freeborn man of the USA I'm a freeborn man of the USA
what kills more police than bullets and liquor? Boredom. They just can't handle that shit. You keep it born, Strand. You keep it dead fucking born. 